So we come this morning again to the Word of God, to the time of the proclamation of God's Word as we continue through our series in the writings of Peter. And we're getting close to the end of First Peter, and the plan is, of course, to move into Second Peter once we are done here. But it's been a good journey as we considered this letter that Peter has written to believers in ancient Turkey who are beginning to feel the heat of a society that does not like them, that is hostile to the people of God. And they're beginning to be ostracized and and feel that and suffer often in little ways that will soon grow into larger ones because that's how persecution works. And we understand that this is just so relevant to God's people. Even us here in the West where we have had relative peace, we feel the climate of society beginning to boil against us when we stand for the truth of God's word and his gospel. And yet we continue with courageous faith as Peter calls us to looking to our living hope that is in Christ Jesus. Our sermon text this morning is from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. This is God's word. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if scarcely the righteous is saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to faithful creator while doing good. This is God's word. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray that you would continue to reveal yourself to us through it, that you would encourage our hearts in the grace of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I read a interesting tweet this week where someone was suggesting that Christians must never to say to people who are suffering or in times of affliction that God is in control. They said that is a cruel thing to say that God is in control. And that sentiment, though it was expressed on social media, is really nothing new. Many people have suggested that God is actually not in control of what is happening in this world, especially the miseries and the afflictions and the sufferings and the pain that people experience. These things just happen. After all, affliction, misery, and pain, and suffering, they all exist as a result of living in a, a world that is cursed by sin. And they're actually Christians who would argue that. But clearly they have not read First Peter very carefully. 
Because God reveals to us through the words of Peter very clearly that he is absolutely in control over all things, including our trials, our suffering, and our afflictions. And Peter has said uh, earlier, uh, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And he has said even in this text here, That it is possible to suffer in accordance to God's will. God is absolutely in control over all things. Now we hear that though. We read these words. And it's natural then to ask the question of why. Why would God allow people, especially his people, whom he loves, whom he has shown great mercy. Why would he allow them, even in this life, to go through affliction? Welsh minister Matthew Henry once said that extraordinary afflictions are not always the punishment of extraordinary sins, but sometimes the trial of extraordinary graces. Sanctified afflictions are spiritual promotions. See, God uses the suffering that happens in the life of his people to bring about a a spiritual promotion. And that is precisely what Peter is talking about in our text here this morning. He wants us to understand that God is not cruel and he has not abandoned us, but he is loving, he is faithful, and he is sovereign. And therefore, we can trust him even when we do suffer afflictions. In fact, he brings us to this very common theme of telling us not to be surprised when affliction happens, especially if you're a Christian. It seems like a statement in the obvious. He says, beloved, do not be surprised at all at the, at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange, something unusual were happening, happening to you. In other words, suffering happens. It happens. It's normal. It's to be expected because of the world in which we live. Now, while that is might seem like a statement in the obvious, many times people don't live like it is. Because there's this common idea that generally speaking, good things will happen to good people and bad things only happen to bad people. But if you ask most people in the world today, if they think that, they would say, well, generally, yeah, that, that, that seems to be true. And as Christians, as believers, we're not immune to that way of thinking. Job's friends certainly were not. If you recall the, the experience of Job, he suffers affliction after affliction, trial after trial. His friends come to him and they, they come to him to try to comfort him. And initially, they were quiet. They, were, they wept with him. And that was a comfort. But then they began to talk, and it would have been better if they did not. Because they accused Job of sin after sin, saying the reason you are suffering these things, Job, is because you have some sin you haven't confessed to the Lord. That's why you're suffering these things. But Job had not sinned. And the words of his friends simply add to his pain. And we know this too, that the gospel, it it promises things like peace. 
that passes human understanding, peace from the chaos of this world. It promises life and mercy and goodness and joy and real happiness. It's a message of everlasting blessing. And we know uh, through God's word that all that is to be true. But oftentimes when we enter into seasons of affliction in this present life, we are affected by doubts. We begin to question God and wonder where he is. Has he abandoned us? Has he left us to suffer alone in the silence? Where is God in the affliction? Well, the answer from Scripture is a resounding no. He has not abandoned you. He has not left you. He is there present with you even in the affliction. And Peter adds to this clear testimony of Scripture by telling us, don't be surprised by the fiery trials as if they are something strange. Instead, understand that God is working through this affliction, this suffering. It is very much a normal part of your life as a Christian sojourning in this world. He uses this term fiery trials, which is really interesting language. Now, in the past, you can read like older commentaries and they will say, well, this must be speaking about persecution by fire, literal fire, uh, like burning at the stake. But that ignores the historical context because we know there was no uh, systemic organized persecution happening when Peter wrote this letter. Instead, it was varied. It was sporadic. It was scattered. It was coming from a a culture that was hostile to the church and ostracizing the people of God in their places of work, in the marketplace, uh, and in social life. And that's very much the idea that Peter has in mind here when he talks about fiery trials, these, these various trials. It's a, it's a, it's a metaphorical way of, of speaking of a situation that burns, that causes pain and anguish. And that might be physical, but it can also be emotional and, and psychological and even spiritual feeling this anguish in one's soul. And you think about burns, physical burns as pain. And it seems like it's one of the, the, the worst kinds of suffering a person can experience. And that's the idea here. Don't be surprised from not just afflictions, but great, extremely painful seasons of affliction. Not just the little inconveniences and annoyances that happen regularly in your life. But those things that are actually hard to bear, the death of a mother or a father or a son or a daughter, things like that, the difficult illnesses that you face, things that cripple you in your mind and bring you down lower than you can imagine your soul could go, that kind of affliction, deep, hard affliction that burns and they can be varied they can be all sorts of things as peter said back in chapter one uh, for this time before the coming of christ we will be grieved by various trials seasons where we have no human control over them We lack the ability or the resources to improve and better our lives. 
dark seasons of the soul where you feel like life is absolutely meaningless or where Satan is constantly attacking you and you don't know how to escape. These kinds of sufferings and afflictions are those things that burn, that sting, that wound your soul and leave you wondering, where is the presence of God? Have I been abandoned? And Peter tells you very definitively, brother and sister, no, he has not abandoned you in the pain. God has not left you. In fact, in the very affliction, you can find the blessing, the smile of God's grace upon you. Your wounds matter to God because Jesus' wounds mattered for you. Peter says that affliction comes on you like a test. What's a test? It's like an exam, right? An examination. And what is the purpose of tests and examinations? Well, they're designed to reveal, to reveal something. So if you are taking a class, if you are a student at Michigan or somewhere else, you have a test, you have an exam, and it's designed to reveal what? What you have learned, or perhaps that you just didn't study, right? For, for some of us, or that you're just a have bad test anxiety, like yours truly. A medical test is also designed to, to expose, to reveal what is an underlying cause or condition of a symptom somebody is having. Um, GM, Ford, and Chrysler all have test tracks where they discover the performance of their vehicles in certain conditions and how they might improve them. And infliction and suffering are a test in the same way. They reveal something within us. These are the afflictions that Matthew Henry spoke of, the the trials of extraordinary graces. They are trials of extraordinary grace because of what they reveal in our hearts. And they reveal the very thing we need to carry us through these seasons of affliction. They reveal... Affliction reveals our faith. So don't be surprised by affliction, even as a Christian, because affliction reveals your faith. Verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Instead of being surprised by suffering and affliction, Peter says, rejoice. And you say, Peter, yeah, right. I mean, to rejoice, though, to be able to rejoice in the face of affliction, that takes real faith. It demonstrates an act of trust and reliance that God is actually in control of this situation. And so I will continue to look to him and praise him for who he is. So Peter's call to rejoice is not to rejoice in the affliction as it itself, as if we somehow must enjoy pain, but to rejoice in the fact that the affliction is bringing to the surface the faith that brings us into God's presence, the faith that is in your heart, the faith that God has gifted to you, the faith that leads you to Christ. You see, suffering is very much a test. It reveals a response, either a response of anger and disdain towards God or hatred and rejection of him, or it reveals a heart of rejoicing in the storm, 
a heart of rejoicing that you belong to Christ, that you have a future hope, and you are resting in Christ's glory that will be revealed. Affliction has this way of of burning away everything else in our lives that we like to hold on to and trust to give us security. And it leaves us only with Jesus. As Tim Keller said, you don't realize Jesus is all you need till Jesus is all you have. And so Peter calls us, rejoice. Now rejoice, even in the face of suffering, because it is revealing to you in that rejoicing your faith in Christ and be glad in the future that is yours. We get a picture of what this looks like uh, in many places throughout church history, but let's look at a biblical one. Back in Acts chapter 5, we have the apostles preaching the gospel throughout Jerusalem. God is, is doing a great work, building his church. And of course, the Sanhedrin, which had condemned Jesus to death and the high priest, they're not happy about this. And so what do they do? They're, they're angry. They're jealous. They arrest the apostles and they put them in prison. Now, God, as he often did in the early church, miraculously delivers them from that prison. And so while the Sanhedrin thinks, hey, we've got them, they're going to be quiet, there they are, back out again the very next day in the temple preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they're very angry now, the Sanhedrin and the high priest. And so they arrest them and they bring them in. And this time they, they want to kill them. And they say, didn't we tell you that you should not preach in, about Jesus, the whole city is following him because of your preaching, because of this gospel. And Peter, of course, courageously responds to the high priest, we ought to obey God rather than men. And now in their anger, they want to kill the apostles. And thankfully, God delivers them again, this time through one of the Sanhedrin's own, a member of the court, Gamaliel, who makes a defense for them. And instead of putting them to death, the Sanhedrin says, fine, we'll just beat them and turn them back out on the street. That'll teach them. And so they do. They beat them terribly and send them back out. And as they leave, Luke records in Acts 5.41 these words, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, that being the name of Christ. They rejoiced that they were worthy to, to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. They rejoiced not because they were suffering, because of the one in whom they were trusting as they suffered, Christ Jesus. And that rejoicing came from their heart of faith, their trust in him. And the honor of that suffering would be transformed into future glory at the revealing of Christ when he returns. So Peter explains, rejoice even now in affliction, a response of faith. And as you respond in faith, that joy you have now, though it is tempered by affliction, will be translated into greater joy at Jesus' return. Because you are looking to the one who will redeem you, who does redeem you. And here's why we need to hear this message even today as God's people. 
Because this response of faith, of simple trust in Christ, despite the trials and the afflictions we face, points us to the presence of God. You see, as we've already observed, there is a temptation to feel like God has abandoned you when you go through seasons of suffering and affliction. And sometimes, even we who are God's people succumb to that temptation for a season. But if God has redeemed you, if he has called you by his grace and, and placed within your heart that faith that is needed to come to Christ, it is only for a season. Because eventually, ultimately, you will, with rejoicing through the tears, come back to Christ. It, the affliction will reveal your faith and your faith will reveal the presence of God in your life. So don't be surprised by afflictions. They are a test. They reveal to you your faith. And your faith reveals God's presence in your life. We read some familiar sounding words in verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. No doubt the Apostle Peter is calling to mind the words of Jesus in Matthew 5. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so the idea is that this world may mock you and defame you and call you foolish for your allegiance to Jesus. But in God's eyes, you are truly blessed. You are blessed, and for that you can rejoice. Now, to be blessed is to be a happy recipient of God's divine favor. It is the smile of heaven upon you, which results in a supernatural joy. And Peter directs our attention to the very source of that blessed, joyous uh, gift of God. He says, you are blessed... Even though you are insulted for Christ, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So when you're united to Jesus in faith, you are immediately given the spirit, the Holy Spirit of God who dwells within you. It does not happen at some other time in life. It happens when you trust Christ, when you know him. And in the Gospel of John, chapter 7, Jesus says this. He says, Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so this metaphor of, of living water flowing from the heart is the Spirit. As, as Jesus continues to explain in John 7, he said, it says, Now he said this about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. That is to say, he wasn't crucified, risen, and ascended. But after Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension, what happens? God does fulfill exactly what Jesus promised. His people receive the Spirit. We read about that in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. And so every believer, everyone who comes to Christ in faith, has the Holy Spirit of God dwelling and resting within their heart from the moment they believe. 
You receive Jesus in faith. You receive the Spirit of God as He pours Him out upon you through Christ. And what that means then is right now, if you are united to Christ, God's very presence is with you in the person of the Holy Spirit. He is there with you. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. Even in times of affliction, God's presence is there in the person of the Holy Spirit to empower you to keep trusting in Christ, to keep resting in the promises of God, and to keep giving you that supernatural joy of heaven. Notice this too. Peter calls the Spirit the Spirit of glory and of God. He could not have been any clearer that he's talking about the presence of God in the Holy Spirit in the life of God's people. God's presence is often associated with his glory in the Bible. If you go back to the Old Testament and look at the tabernacle and the temple, his presence was manifested in what was called the Shekinah glory, which rested between the cherubim of the Ark of the Covenant in the holiest place. It was to represent God's dwelling with his people. In fact, that's what Shekinah means. It means a dwelling or a dwelling place. So God's glory, his presence was with the people in the temple. But now we have a better place of God's abiding presence. Our own very hearts through the spirit of God. The spirit of glory and the spirit of God. And so affliction then, it reveals your faith. And what does that faith result in? It results in belonging to Christ. And when you belong to Christ, the blessing of the Spirit of God is poured out upon you. And what is the Spirit of God? It is the very presence of God. And so you are not abandoned. God is with you there even in the affliction. And the affliction points you to that truth. Which leads us then, well, how do we respond? How should we as God's people respond when we go through these seasons of suffering? Peter tells you, keep trusting in God and glorify Him with your life. It's that simple. Keep looking to Jesus. You see, because God's presence is with us when we suffer affliction, we can keep glorifying Him with our lives and trusting Him. And he gives us three reasons here real quickly as we conclude. Because God is just, God is faithful, and God is sovereign. First, we see God's justice. Peter makes a contrast, as he's so fond of doing in this letter. He says, Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So some suffering, we know, is not honorable suffering at all. Some suffering comes as a result of sinful choices people have made. And he gives us some examples there in verse 15. In fact, he gives us uh, a few examples, but it is an argument from the greater to the lesser. Murder is a horrible and heinous sin that destroys the life of another. Those who Murder often suffer the just rewards of their actions and they suffer themselves great affliction. Theft must be repaid. And that often results in a lifetime of hardship because of, of one's sinful choice. 
And an evildoer, well, that's just a general term for a sinner. And then a meddler is someone who's a busybody who, who harasses others and treats them poorly. And there is a big difference between a murderer and a meddler, especially in terms of the heinousness of their sin. But the point is, is that all sinful activity from these horrible things down to just this being a meddler, they can result in suffering but God's people must not sin, they, and they must not suffer Instead, they, for that sin. Instead, they must glorify God. And so he says, don't be ashamed if you're suffering because you are living for the Lord. That kind of suffering, he says, is an honor. Remember, shame and honor are thought of a little differently in Peter's world than how we understand them today. Um, they had less to do with embarrassment and more to do with one's social standing as a result of a victory or a defeat. And to suffer as a Christian was not a loss. It was not a defeat. It was no shame, but rather it was a victory and honor because it meant that they were part of Jesus's kingdom by means of their faith in him. God is a just God, and He will vindicate His people. He will honor them as they faithfully follow Him. But for those who do not, they will suffer the consequences of their sin. God is a just God. In fact, that justice continues to show forth in verse 17. As Peter writes, for the, the for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, you probably read that and you say, well, what is he talking about? I mean, wait a minute. I thought the Bible teaches that believers are under no condemnation for their sin because Jesus stood condemned in their place on the cross. And that is true. Well, what does he mean then when he says judgment must begin at the household of God if there is no condemnation towards God's people? Well, Peter is not speaking of final judgment here when Christ returns. He's not talking about that at all. In fact, this, this word that is translated judgment, like all Greek words, has a range of meanings, and those meanings must be determined by the context in which they are used. And here it is simply referring to the action a judge takes, and punishment is not necessarily in view. Judgment is being seen here or portrayed and understood as a process. And that is why Peter says it is time for judgment to begin. Earlier in chapter 4, as we saw last week, he explained that the end of all things is at hand. That process has begun. We are in the final age of God's redemptive history. We're not waiting for anything else to happen other than for Christ to return. That process has begun. And part of that process is God's eschatological judgment that is being poured out the on the world. And we see that in the form of suffering and affliction. And since believers living in this world are sojourning as citizens of heaven, awaiting the finalization of our hope, since we are doing that, we sometimes will suffer because that affliction has fallen upon the world. But we know we have a hope 
that one day this will all end and every tear will be wiped away and death will be defeated forever. There will be no more suffering. We have that hope. But what will the outcome be, argues Peter, for those who do not obey the gospel by turning to Jesus in faith and repentance? Not only do they suffer affliction and pain and disease and death and heartbreak and hardship and want now, but it will continue for all eternity as they are separated from the presence of God forever. Because God is a just God. He must judge sin. And those who do not turn to Christ who suffered that judgment for them will have to answer for it themselves. And so Peter gives us a quote from Proverbs 11.31, which is in verse 18, to support that. And the idea being that not that believers are barely saved, but that they travail through this life as sojourners, suffering, awaiting their final salvation, but they have a great hope that suffering will one day end. Yet those who know not Christ, the unrighteous, do not have that hope that suffering will end. So God is just, and he is also faithful, and he is sovereign, which is what Peter says in verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So God is faithful, and this is uh, that is to say, he, he keeps his word. What he has promised, he will fulfill. He always does. And we can be assured of that even when we are being burned and bruised and battered and beaten and blown by various afflictions. God's promises to us in Christ still stand because he is faithful. He will fulfill them. He will bless us just as he promised Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, speaking of Jesus, that all the promises of God find their yes in him. And that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Indeed, God's covenant faithfulness is fulfilled to us in the person of Christ. But not only is he faithful, therefore we can trust him, but he is also sovereign. That means he is there in control of the suffering, the affliction we face. Peter calls him here a faithful creator. Why does he bring up God as creator? Well, it's to point us to God's sovereignty. You see, God has made all things by the word of his power. Every grain of sand, every particle that exists in the farthest reaches of this universe, every great whale that swims in the ocean, every bird that graces the blue skies above, all things are from him, through him, and to him. And so he is Lord, he is sovereign over all. He has absolute control over everything, including the affliction that we suffer. Nothing surprises him. And therefore, we can trust him. Because he is faithful, and he is sovereign, and he is just. And so when we face afflictions, whatever they may be, remember, you are not alone. The very God that shaped this world 
By the word of his power, he is with you, present with you through his spirit. The very God that, that breathed life into your body, that formed you in your mother's womb, he is with you. The very God that sent his only son into the world to suffer and die in your place, he is with you. The very God who raises up nations and scatters armies and defeats empires and divided seas and moved mountains, he is with you. The very God who has promised you that you will share in the glories of Christ if you must suffer with Christ, he is with you. So entrust yourself to him. Keep trusting in him for his glory. Yes, we will face afflictions. But those afflictions are sometimes a trial of extraordinary grace. They are sanctified afflictions that result in a spiritual promotion. For they reveal to us our faith. And our faith reveals to us that we belong to Christ and to our God. He is with you. So keep trusting him. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word once again and the truth that it reveals that while we may suffer a great many things in this world, you have not abandoned us. You have not left us alone, but you are very much with us through fire and through flood until that great day when our Savior Christ returns and we see him And we are lifted up to meet him and know him and enjoy him forever. And all of our tears and pain and sorrow are wiped away. Lord, we long for that day. And so we pray, even as we toil and labor here and sojourn here, waiting for the night to end and the morning to break, we pray, Lord, come quickly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.